Hello, I'm Harry Glurikian, and this is The Harry Glurikian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. These days, it feels like there's a medicine for almost everything. There are drugs to calm your restless legs. There are drugs to treat fungal infections under your toenails or fingernails. There are even drugs to calm down performers who suffer from stage fright. So it feels odd that the drug industry has almost completely ignored one of our most important organs, our ears. 15% of people in the U.S. report at least some level of hearing loss. So you'd think drug makers would be doing more to figure out how they can help. Well, now there's at least one company that is. It's a six-year-old company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Decibel Therapeutics. Decibel went public in 2021 to help raise money to fund its research on ways to treat a specific form of deafness caused by a rare genetic mutation. It turns out that in about 10% of children who are born with auditory neuropathy, the problem is a mutation in a gene for a protein called otopherlin. It's involved in the formation of tiny bubbles or vesicles that carry neurotransmitters across the synapses between the inner hair cells that pick up sound and auditory neurons in the brain. Decibel is testing a gene therapy that would provide patients with a correct working copy of the otopherlin gene. Otopherlin wasn't even discovered until 1999. So the fact that there's a drug company working to correct mutations in the gene for the protein is a great example of how genomics is enabling big advances in medicine. My guest today is Decibel CEO, Lawrence Reed. And in our conversation, he explained how the company's work is coming along and how Decibel hopes to make up for all those decades when the pharmaceutical business had basically zero help to offer for people with hearing loss. Lawrence, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, hey, good morning, Harry. Great to see you again. Thank you for thanks very much for the opportunity to join you. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, we've known each other for, my God, I remember, like, I want to go back in time to uh, Warp or one of those companies oh, way back was, when, when you were was, there, like 10 or 15 years ago. I think, I think we're both compressing, <laughs> our, uh, compressing our memories. I think it was a, a while before that, but, you, you know, you've been a student of personalized medicine, of course, and a leader of those ideas. And I, you know, a lot of those ideas for me started, at least personally, when I was at Millennium. And I think we were pretty... You know, I think there was a lot of fantastic thinking that some level was, you know, ahead of where we really were technologically. But I, I think that's when you and I first met. So I know it's uh, great to reconnect. Yeah. And, and now you're CEO of uh, a company called Decibel, which is ironic because I remember when the company f literally was coming out, they called me to help them think through diagnostics. Oh, interesting. I, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, no, the company got incubated at Third Rock um, and, and got launched in 2016. So we're about six years old now. And, yep. you know, we believe that, you know, the, the time is, is now for sort of molecular innovation coming to hearing loss and love to talk more about that. But the diagnosis remains, there's an interesting, uh, there's almost a dichotomy because at least in the, in the, in the Western world, we put our babies religiously through a hearing test within 24 48 
you know, 96 hours of being born. And then, and then beyond that, like we sort of like, almost we don't quite ignore it. That would be unfair. But it, <laughs> the, caliber of, the caliber of follow-up care, never mind when you're our kind of ages, is, is really poor. So we're like, we're really good out of the gate. And then after that, it, it, and part of that is diagnosis. And something we think a lot about, which, you know, you, you would love is trying to think about, you know, improved molecular diagnostics, particularly with respect to the genetic uh, components of hearing loss. So love to talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you were talking to, you know, Kevin Davies on a, on another uh, show. I mean, I think you mentioned you said something like hearing is a backwater uh, you know, of the pharmaceutical industry. And most of the focus is is uh, what I would call a device, not necessarily a drug. So, you know, if we let's I mean, starting there, where, where do you see or how do you see that changing? And, you know, how have genomic tools and, and these things made a difference in the direction that we're going. And I think that's what Decibel was sort of yeah. formed around, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. Now, so those are, those are the central questions. So, you know, where we are today is there are, you know, so, so both, and we think about both hearing loss and balance disorders, because they're both mediated by evolutionary related organs that sit inside, inside the inner ear. And, um, you know, the hearing loss afflicts literally hundreds of millions of people around the globe. But, you know, at all ages, it can come on, you can, whether it's congenital or it's sort of, you know, later in life or noise induced. So it's, it's, a, it's a massive unmet need. And, you know, it, and there are no approved therapies. So it's, it's a field of medicine today that is, that is completely um, served to the degree it is served by assistive devices, namely hearing aids and then and then cochlear implants. And there are no approved therapies. And I think the pharmaceutical industry has been really is just not invested in the field at all. Um, Astellas, you know, works with our friends at Frequency and, you know, has been committed. And a couple of other big companies have sort of dabbled and then and then exited. Um, translation has been a has been a challenge. We should talk about that, you know, preclinical work not really replicating once you get to you know, human beings. And so it's been a, a quite a difficult field for, for many years. And, um, and so the pharmaceutical industry has really not, not dived in. <clears throat> and, you know, when Third Rock was really incubating Decibel, um, which is, you know, how they, how they start companies, it was one of their ones that was, was a slow burn. And they, had, they looked at assets out of one or two pharmaceutical companies and were really trying to get their heads around um, you know, it, it is the time really now? And they they pulled the trigger in 2016 and went into it with a belief that that molecular innovation was coming and is coming, and that that would that, that would you know give rise to, to therapies. <clears throat> so here we are, six years later, and the, the playing field, as I like to say, is really you know dominated by by small companies. And we like to think about Decibel as a leader there, but there are other companies doing fine science. But they're small companies, and um, but that's that's going to change. It has to change, and it's going to be exciting from many aspects when it changes. It affects how you build a company when pharmaceutical companies are sort of watching, but they're not committed, and and they're not they're certainly not investing yet. But I think that's going to change, and I think we're going to see it change. I don't know in the next couple of years, and I think five to ten years from now, all the major pharmaceutical companies would have to be playing in this because you know there's the aging component. There's the cognitive health later in life. We could talk more about the specifics of, of why hearing is so important to our 
existence as human beings, mm. and it's really not just a quality of life issue. And um, yeah, it's going to no, change. It is going to be what I was going to say to have that happen. Yeah, I, yeah. That's why I was going to. I was going to say. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, and it was fascinating to me when when uh, I went into Decibel, like you know, when it was first getting started and have, was having conversations, it was like the number of people that are losing you know, certain parts of their hearing earlier in life because of all the headphones and how loud they listen to things and so forth was staggering. And then the economic impact of that was even more staggering. Um, and so you would think that it's not just the pharma industry that would be interested, but anybody that, like, I've got my AirPods in now, so... I mean, Apple should be. So those, those guys, right? those guys are, are are working around the field. Um, Bose, of course, a, a fine Massachusetts company with um, some of the best sound equipment. They've been investing in, in the hearing aid uh, technology field for in recent years, and have just launched a new generation of technology under that umbrella and come out with some pretty sophisticated marketing, trying to really get people to think about the quality of their hearing and why it's important and. Um, so as you say, so new people coming at it, despite their, perhaps their, their contributions to it. And um, so it's, you know, it, so I think that, I think that's, you know, it really very, very interesting. And, um, but, but, it, but it, but it is, but it, is guys... it is, it's devices, as you say, it's devices. So today, you know, a lot of it is treated nominally with hearing aids and then for very severe forms, particularly in, in, in young kids and, but in adults as well. Um, there's a technology which has been around for about 20 years now known as a cochlear implant where yep. you have a surgical implantation of a very sophisticated device into your cochlea and it essentially it essentially hardwires a, really a microphone directly onto the uh, onto the auditory nerve and so there's a device inside your head and then there's a detection device that, that is visible outside but both of these you know, we view as assistive devices. And, and I mean, with some of the things that we're thinking about for molecular therapies, you know, we really think we can be disease modifying. And, you know, the devices are there a, a, an attempt to sort of palliate effectively the manifestations of hearing loss. They, you know, they don't work 24 seven, they because they can't. And kids in particular hate wearing them. But, you know, our parents hate wearing them as well, um, particularly the hearing aids. And so the, the compliance is um, is very poor. But I think more right. importantly, um, they can only be so effective. And um, particularly if you're very severely deaf, the difference bet between that status and you know what the kid next to you in the classroom is is hearing and picking up and how that's affecting their development is really is really massive and to me is one of the big drivers certainly why i got excited about the field personally oh yeah i mean you know I, you know if you're in a crowded restaurant and you can't hear the person across from you there's you know all of a sudden it changes the entire dynamics of what's going on i mean that you know that said i think if my wife could implant a microphone that was directly wired into my brain she would probably take advantage of that to make sure i hear everything she's hard hardwire that straight into her larynx and then, <laughs> then then everything would be uh, would be beautifully aligned yeah no it, it's really interesting though um my beloved mother is 84 and you, know, you have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with her and it's fine you know it, it, it's absolutely it's completely normal like you and i chatting or talking to a 20 year old 
where you put her in a crowded restaurant and it's and it's very hard for her to participate at all and so it's a, it's a really interesting so that's at one level that's trivial right it's a night out in a restaurant but it's indicative of the challenge that so i always think most easily comes to me with thinking about congenital deafness and then deafness or loss of hearing in in older people but that restaurant is sort of an analog for in the case of the older people losing you know we talk a lot about connection um losing right. connection with their loved ones or, or their co-workers or, or you know their family and you know hearing loss is the number one risk factor in cognitive decline you know later in life and nobody yeah. is suggesting it's necessarily causative but that loss of connectivity clearly in some way is contributing to you know to, to a cognitive decline and i think that's really the way to think about it for me i think about hearing loss as why why does it matter and, and it's not you know because i think it's if you haven't dealt with it you probably just think about it in terms of a social discourse but actually why it really matters is the impact on i use the phrase cognitive health which is probably not a phrase of professional right. it's really how is your overall um ability to to interact with people to process information and and, and to share it and if you're disconnected it, it's clearly contributing to you know to to to, to that you know, lack of, uh, of of interaction and ability to, you know, to, to have discourse with, with our with our uh, with our families, and so you see that contributing to loss of, of interactions later in life. And then for a kid, well, it's not for and, a kid, it's and things like you know, yeah, and how it affects the economy. I mean, if you're not going out to dinner, or you're not, you know, or you don't hear everything at work, or things like that. I think the impact is is dramatic. But you know, how many I know you guys are working on different therapeutic approaches to solve this problem. So, you know, how many different forms of deafness right now or maybe balance disorders are monogenic or, or caused by mutations of a single gene that say we can get in there and do something about? Because I think that's where you guys are starting. That's, that's where we're starting. And that, that, that's exactly the right way to, to think about it. So let, let me let me step back and then I'll answer your specific question. So. The strategy that we've taken, and other people have, have different views of this, is really that the most robust understanding in 2022 of the molecular etiology of any form of hearing loss is, is that that's driven by overtly by monogenic conditions. So two mutated genes inherited from mom and dad, that, you know, good old recessive genetics. And um, that, therefore, we're able to understand precisely what's causing it and we're able to understand the impact of that of a child born you know with biallelic mutations in the odoferlin gene for example and and the promise of gene therapy is you know the ultimate to put back a a, a functioning copy of the gene very early in life and put a child back to a physiological state of you know, of, of hearing that mimics, you know, the, the, the kid down the street. And that's, and that's the ambition. And <clears throat> what we think will, that will enable is both, you know, these modifying treatments, maybe even cures for, for those sections of the population, but it'll teach us about how to do gene therapy safely in the ear. And we think the ear is a wonderful organ in which to do gene therapy and we should let me talk about that in a moment 
Um, yeah, absolutely. But, the, but that over time, the Holy Grail. So as you get into the bigger populations, it's a classic, you know, genetics and environment, viruses, noise, lots of chemicals or lots of things go, you know, that, that, that damage our ears over the course of life. And we just naturally lose the sensory hair cells in our ears over the course of life. Everybody approximately linearly is losing that that sensitive and, and that sensitivity. And so eventually you hit a threshold and we all suffer from some form of hearing loss or balance, you know, lack of equilibrium as we get to be, you know, a little bit older. And for for many different causes. And so the, the holy grail is can we really have regenerative medicines that that regenerate the sensory the sensory hair cells as they're called in the inner ear potentially as a treatment for hearing loss or balance disorders and so the way we think about this is our strategy is really to to start with the monogenic forms of hearing loss have a chance for very clear diagnosis driving very precise clinical trials <clears throat> driving potentially therapies that are you know directly addressing mechanism and with very high potential molecular upside and to build from there into a pipeline of gene therapies that will start to go into broader populations, populations of, of much older people, and that will be gene therapies that are regenerative medicine. So that's our sort of long-term vision of how this will how this will evolve. But it's starting with the monogenic conditions, which which are which are rare diseases by by orphan diseases by all, all definitions. And and I think for the reasons that rare diseases has been such an intellectual driver of our industry in the past 20 to 30 years, right, is because you can link mechanism to an, an etiology and a potential molecular cure in a very linear fashion. But it teaches you so much about how to manipulate an organ and how to develop therapies that eventually will treat broader populations. Yeah, Lawrence, you need to move faster because I think I went to one too many rock concerts when I was younger, and uh, you know I could tell you that. I, re you know, I remember. I remember, you think about I remember it, right? Friends when I was in high school who were <laughs> who were into certain, you know, heavy. I, I hated heavy metal when I was a kid, but I had friends, and they would come back and they'd been to a concert and they they'd stuck their head inside the uh, speaker and they they couldn't hear for like a day or two. And I I. I think back to those. I worry about where those guys are now. It comes their hearing out. I'm sure they're otherwise. I, I, yeah, I mean, when you're when you're when your ear is ringing like a day afterwards, you probably recognize yeah, that was probably not a good. It. it was it was a lot of fun at the time. Right. You right. you pay for it later, but but okay. Stepping back though, e even if we were able to match every form of deafness to a specific genetic cause, right? very few infants uh, or children get the kind of tests that would be needed. Like how widely available are these genetic tests for the, you know, hearing neuropathies today or. I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 go, go ahead. Cause that no, would be, it's, you it's, know, my it's, first it's, question. It's the, it's the minority. And, and, and so by definition, and I appreciate, you know, you've, you've worked and thought a lot about this over the last years. Um, you know, good diagnosis is, is gating to everything that can follow. And so part of our broader, I mean, at some level, if, if actually even step back from molecular diagnosis, which I know is where you'd want to go, that just overall, uh, how we manage hearing health is, you know, is, is almost rudimentary compared to how we think about, about our eyes, for example. And just, I, you know, I had my annual physical a couple of days ago and, 
and a new physician. And, and the doctor was like, oh, you know, do, do you go and get your eyes tested on, on an annual basis? And which I do. And we talked about all the, you know, the good things that a cutting edge, you know, ophthalmologist does these days to look at your optic health. And then I was like, you know, the real question you should be asking me is when did I get my hearing tested? And but when did you last get we just we just it just doesn't it's just not part of adult health care um, in, in a routine way unless you get to really. I mean, my wife and I joke about it occasionally of like, oh, well, let's go together and get our hearing tested. Not that it's not that it's at all funny, but, but it's not it's a, it's a serious issue, but it's just not part of routine health care for helping adults think about about how they, how they manage their health. So those are, those are, so we at some level we start with a, a broader set of educational issues and then and then we dive down pretty quickly into how do we educate people about about the need and potential power of molecular diagnostics for children who when we begin to figure out that, that their hearing is developing you know in the early either days or, or summer days or, or, or early years of their life and as, as um, in the in the developed world um, most children have a basic hearing test you know within hours of being born literally often while they're still in the hospital and it's like you know in, in many many places they, they, they catch them while while mom is still you know literally in the hospital and um and they do a basic hearing test so we, we catch a lot of it like that if it if you start if the hearing degenerates after that it is still very challenging for that to get properly understood and picked up and diagnosed and managed even in um you know developed cities in you know in the united states and the the ability to, to reflex to molecular testing is is very variable if you talk to our <clears throat> our audiology team it starts to be very dependent on which city do you live in and what's the ability i mean we're so privileged in boston in the mass eye and ear obviously one of the, the world's leading hospitals but but how do you get from a an early yeah there's an issue here to any form of molecular, what that path looks like of your, you know, your pediatrician driving you to real audiological analysis, driving you to molecular diagnosis, it's 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 a pretty fraught path. And so, it, oh it's, yeah, I mean, you really you, you think about it in the in yeah in cities like Boston, fair enough. And 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 I'll be privileged to live here. We're lucky to live here from that perspective. But it, it's very heterogeneous. And so part part of our work is really. We have a collaboration with our friends at Invitae, part of yeah. which is trying to just, it's its almost educational. It's offering a free genetic testing service for important genes related to your hearing health. Um, but part of the purpose is, is educational, really. Yeah, yeah. I was going to i was gonna ask about that. I mean, Invitae making it available. I mean, this is somewhat of a crusade, right, to educate people and get them on board, right? Because if you just don't know it, what's available, you may not. Correct. Think about it for your child. And if a parent knows they can help their child, I think most parents would go out of their way to do something positive. But oh, just just for everybody who's on the, the phone, you know, can you walk us through an example of, like, say, a single gene mutation can cause deafness? Sure. I mean, maybe you can concentrate on the example of, uh, I think it's Odoferlin. Odoferlin, yeah. it correctly? Yeah. Which is... You know, basically, if I've understood it correctly, it's the formation of the synaptic vesicles that carry neurotransmitters across the synapse, which is very, very tiny. And if the hair pulls away just enough, 
you start losing that ability to hear at that level because the chemical can't jump across uh, to make that connection, which is, I think, what's happening to me as I get older. <laughs> yeah, oh, very good. Yeah, and I'd love to talk about Odafurlin. And um, you know, so Odafurlin is our first program um, where we and other people are thinking about this as well. Our friends at Akuos are, uh, are working hard on this problem as well. Um, but it's the vanguard program for decibel and the field in terms of gene therapy for modern forms of hearing loss. And so obviously we, we know the gene that, that, that causes you know, this, this particular um, subset of, of severe hearing loss. The children are born profoundly deaf. They really have almost no, no signaling capability uh, whatsoever. Um, despite that, um, when you study their ears and when you look at animal, animal genetic models of the condition, the ear functionally, structurally appears to be normally constituted. So one, mm -hmm. you, you know, you see, start with a, a belief that we may be able to instate normal hearing in these people by, in these children by, by, by providing a, you know, a wild type, a normal copy of the gene. And there are other forms of, of, of genetic hearing loss where by the time the kids are born, the children are born, their ear has not developed properly, structurally and functionally. And I think that's a much harder problem and, and, and may, may be impossible to, to solve postnatal so so as we think about areas where we think we could have an impact with the first generations we're looking for clear genetics we're looking for an ear that appears to develop normally and in which we therefore have the chance to instate normal hearing odoferlin is a calcium sensor and it functions at the interface between the hair cells in the cochlea the inner hair cells as they're called which are the mm -hmm. cells that transduce Sound is effectively a mechanical signal. It comes to us as a sound wave and it, it disturbs structures and eventually molecular structures inside your inner ear and creates a molecular signal that is transmitted by the hair cell through the synapse, as you say, to the auditory nerve. So it's a direct interface between these cells that are, that are detecting the, the, the sound wave um, into, the, uh, into the auditory nerve. And if you lack odoferlin, your calcium sensing functionality at that synapse it, it, it is not present and, and and there's essentially no signal so we measure this with something called an auditory brainstem response which is a, a test you can run in a human uh, you know or an animal and there essentially it's a flat line which from a from a, a, a restoration of, of a normal signal it is a, it's a really um, excellent clinical endpoint because we're gonna we hope, in state, uh, uh, you know, a signal, a quantitative signal with qualitative richness as well, that we're going to be able to measure, you know, relatively early after we administer our therapy. Um, but the children have, so this is what we call an auditory neuropathy. They have no ability to signal from the hair cell into the brain. And um, as I say, the structures appeared um, to be intact. And what we know is that in an animal, if you create an animal model of this, a genetic animal model, that um, you know we can go into that now with DBOTO as we call it, which is our which is our mm -hmm. AAV adeno adeno associated virus vector to to basically deliver a normal form of the gene, <clears throat> and we can do that within weeks of this mouse being born. But interestingly, we can also go to those animals as long as a year after they're born, which which for a, a small furry animal is is 
about half of their life. So it's a big piece of their life. And, and we can go in, we can uh, uh, intervene at that, at that one year point and still rescue the phenotype. So the ears are, the, are, are, okay. are structurally intact. And when we provide the signaling molecule, we, we, we fairly quickly, you know, instate a normal signal. So, um, so that's, that's exciting, right? And A, it's, the, it's, it's a fantastic signal to measure in an animal. B, it gives us a lot of optimism that if we can get the gene to the right cells and get it turned on, then decent chance to 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 solve the to solve the signaling problem so that's sort of our reason to believe and actually and then the, maybe the last component and then then i'll then i'll breathe is the ear, we think the ear is is a fantastic place for gene therapy broadly because your inner ear is this tiny enclosed compartment so we have a, a we we need a surgical route to get there but we can then go directly to the site where one is trying to elicit the molecular effect and deposit a tiny amount of drug compared to what's required through about three or four orders of magnitude less drug than is required for systemic gene therapy directly at the site where we're looking to elicit the biological effect. And, and then almost none of it leaks out into the, into, the, into the systemic circulation. So the ear, we think, is a fantastic order, or organ for gene therapy and we think we know some great genes to go after as our first generation. Yeah, I mean, you know, whenever if, if uh, you know if people have followed any type of gene therapy, like the eye has been an optimal place to sort of start with. And Correct. so, you know, I think you guys are learning from what has been done in ophthalmology to sort we of we transition this to the ear, which. You know, I always say to people, like, we always start on the outside because it's a lot easier, and then we sure. <laughs> then we figure out how to go deeper in because uh, it's a lot harder. But, um, you know, what kind of results are you seeing so far, you know, when you transfer genes into you know, maybe non-human primates? Yeah, um, yeah. No, so we, we've just in the last year or two transitioned from rodent studies to, to non-human primates. And um, but just you are correct that the, the, the characteristics of the ear – that make us so excited about the possibility here a lot of them are very much um learnings from from why the eye has been really such a, a primary site of, of our efforts in gene therapy and particularly in the last know, 10 years or so um and so as, as we move um from small animals to larger animals to human beings you know we start with as i mentioned genetic rodent models and we can you know knock genes out in the mouse that, that replicate um the human genetics. The ear, it turns out, is um, is evolutionarily highly concerned. So the the ear of a rodent is a lot smaller than than your ear and my ear, but but it, but structurally and molecularly and cellularly, it's it's very analogous. And we can come back to your point about genomics and how it's opened up our understanding of these cells. But nonetheless, the the, the basic structure and physiology is highly conserved from from lower mammals to, to, to higher mammals. And so, so we start with genetic models that we can manipulate the genome and create a, you know, what we believe is a pretty interesting um, analog, rodent analog of the human condition. We don't have um, genetic models in non-human primates. So we end up doing studies in non-human primates where we, uh, we, we mimic exactly the surgical procedure by which we will access the inner ear and then we end up 
um, either using a surrogate marker, you know, GFP, or we end up um, detecting the human odorferl in, in the non-human primate, which is quite hard, but, but we've sort of figured out how to do that now. And really what you're looking at is, 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 a, is really is, is efficiency of the delivery and expression process. And, you, and then, but you can't measure a fixing of, of, of the genetic burden. And so at Decibel, we spend a lot of time using our genomics platform to really be able to define molecular control of our gene therapy. So we're really trying to express the transgene selectively in the cell types where nature nature intended it to function. So, you know, a calcium sensor in the wrong in the wrong cell type, you know, one might one might fear, and we have data that suggests that that you know it may be a problem. So Decibel has really invested very significantly in sophisticated molecular control of our gene therapies. And <clears throat> so when we do the experimentation in the non-human primate, we're looking at are we getting good delivery throughout the cochlea? Are we getting good infectivity throughout the cochlea? And then expression of basically a surrogate marker because we, we can't change the physiology of, of, a, of a normal non-human primate. So it's really all about, about surgery, delivery, um, expression, and then obviously you then got a stable transgene expression. It turns out rises over the, over, over the weeks and months after uh, after the after the transduction, and so we're measuring that, and that's going to play ultimately into clinical trial design, both in terms of safety and um, and endpoints that we'll measure in human beings. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going, and that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show, and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show, and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds, but you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show. And one more thing. If you like the interviews we do here on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, how artificial intelligence can help you get healthier, stress less, and live longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now... Back to the show. I would assume that some level of spatial genomics, the new technologies that are out there, must be hugely helpful to see the different cell types, where they are, what type they are, and you know what what is actually lighting up and changing versus what you don't want to light up and change. So, yeah, um, so, I, so I, I had a great interview with Resolve um, on, on their system, which I think is going to be the next frontier, because what you're saying is what cell type, where it is, and did I make the change in the exact one that I wanted? No, that's that, that, that's exactly right. So my my colleagues long before I was here invested in building a platform that we think is still, you know, we, we have a database of over three million molecular profiles of the cells of the inner ear, which we think is a unique asset. 
and basically applying the tools of single cell genomics, which is the ability at the level of individual cells, you know, in the organ of an individual animal to analyze comprehensive gene expression. And so what we've been able to do, and I think this is part of just changing our attitude to how do we understand the cells of the inner ear and therefore how can we think about manipulating them pharmacologically to open up the field and so we have a complete molecular characterization of there are about 30 or so important cells in the inner ear and there's two or three subsets of those cells starting with the hair cells that i talked about that are probably the critical therapeutic targets and so we have a detailed molecular understanding of the composition at the level of gene expression of each of these different cell types and we look at them a lot as they as they as they differentiate and form in a natural process because we think that holds the answer ultimately to regenerating them you know as part of this next part of our strategy um, but it's also taught us about how individual cells control gene expression and I mean, odoferlin is expressed essentially um, in an adult animal only in the, the so-called inner hair cells. And that's what we then aim to replicate with our gene therapy. And so we've been able to take our genomics platform to define genetic regulatory elements that, that drive our transgenes in our gene therapies to express selectively in the most important cell type where you need it and not elsewhere. And we know from our animal studies that that, that has a beneficial impact on on the, on the therapy and, and the particularly the durability of the therapy and so that's our overall molecular goal but it leverages this platform of single cell genomics and um, yeah. so so I've seen company presentations like you guys are you know you intend to initiate uh, a phase one you know uh, you know clinical trial of of dboto I mean how's that going I mean what are the big technical or medical barriers that, you know, or, you know, where you're thinking about testing gene therapy, like, I mean, that, you know, uh, where are you guys in all that? Yeah, so, so we are what we've, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to be precise as, as a public company, I need to be, be careful in, in, in <laughs> staying yes. with staying with my disclosures. So apologies in advance. But um, what we said is that we'll initiate, we'll file an IND or a CTA in Europe this year. And, and move into our first in human study uh, this year. And um, so we're in the, you know, we're, we're deep in all the almost classical, you know, pre-IND ID work of making material and, you know, and testing it in, in the final, uh, you know, GLP talk studies and making material of a caliber that'll, that'll go into human beings, which is, you know, very exciting. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's what we're working on. Those are the two sort of basic uh, barriers i mean we have we've published and talked publicly about a lot of our animal data as what, what i sort of recited a few minutes ago of small animals to large animals i think we understand the basic pharmacology and now it's okay scale up make the material for human being you know gmp material for human beings test uh the material you know in more prolonged uh formal toxicology studies you know and move it into human beings so that that work is ongoing um, the other part that's really fascinating that you would appreciate is, you know, in a rare disease like this, a lot of very interesting discussions about, about you know, what's the exact patient cadre in which one starts, uh, you know, a clinical trial. And um, yes. we spend a lot of time building relationships with, um, w with clinicians, uh, particularly in Europe, but also in the U.S., 
who've, who've really invested in understanding um, the, gen the genetic basis of, of children in their region um, with you know, genetic forms of, of auditory neuropathy. And we have a fantastic collaboration with uh, our colleagues in Madrid at the Romani Cajal, who have a database that, that we, is essentially all of the, all of the known diagnoses of, of, of otoferlin uh, deficiency you know, in Spain. And so they've done, so we have been able to help them do a lot of natural history work. What is, the, what is the progression of the condition and how do we find these kids? And, and so we ultimately, not necessarily immediately, but the ultimate goal is to treat children very early in life. These, these kids are now, um, once they're diagnosed, they would get a cochlear implant really probably around the end of their first year of life. It used to be more like two, but that age has come down. From a medical perspective, um, you know, being born profoundly deaf is the phrase is, is a neurodevelopmental emergency. And I, I talk a lot about, about old people, but for a kid the, the, or a baby, the issue is that hearing, lack of hearing impacts their, their initial social interactions, their, right. their, their generation of language skills and their ability there and that and that feeds into their cognitive development so there's a there's a whole set of emotional interactions that are happening very early in life and of course there's so much you know cognitive development going on and the hearing is is the absolute gate to a lot of that happening and so it's widely you know widely agreed that uh, say this phrase of neurodevelopmental emergency is what physicians use so so ultimately we need to be treating these kids you know in the first year or two of their life and um, right. you know how soon we'll get there remains to be seen, and it is an ongoing uh, discussion. But, but that's that's where we'll, that's where ideally we would end up. While at the same time, as I said, we know we can intervene in animals later in their lives. So we're optimistic that we're going to be able to take adolescents and, um, and 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 children, you know, beyond the first year or two of life, and still be able to have a positive impact on them. Well, that that's the vision for sort of the broader applicability not just in a in a effectively a newborn baby yeah i mean you know i mean a child's you know the neuroplasticity or or how easily that yeah. their brain or their system adapts and changes i could see you know the drug having a, a much more profound effect in in that population i mean in you know older people I like to believe that we still have neuroplasticity. Well, you and I can still learn new things. Because I'm constantly evolving and changing. But, you know, the, the, I also sometimes think we're sort of stuck and maybe maybe don't have. But, you know, the human body is an amazing, it is. you know, machine. Um, and, but, you know, it brings me like one of the biggest themes on this show is like data, data, data. And, you know, how that yeah. intersects biology. And, you know, um you, what you're talking about is identifying the right sets of data, the right patients to yeah. have this work, you know, done on so that yeah. you can achieve a level of success. We all know that if you pick the wrong patients, like you're, you know, utterly almost doomed for failure um, or you're going to have an effect that you really didn't want to have. Yeah. So how much of, of Decibel's work or approach is is rooted in here's the data, here's the patient, this is who we're going to, you know, how, how much are you guys using that to drive every decision that you're making? No, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really great question, actually. And the answer is a lot. In fact, as, 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 as I think about Decibel 
and um, where I think the team that my predecessor built, um, uh, Steve Holtzman, of course, you know, is really, really exceptional, is is effectively translation in, in its broadest sense, right? I think what differentiates Decibel is an outstanding understanding of the biology of the inner ear and that we've invested in, in, in turning that into a genomic molecular understanding of every cell type. But it's then, okay, who's my patient? What's their molecular profile? And how do I link that back, feed that back into my discovery process? What do my animal models look like? And how am I looking forward, you know, into ultimately into a clinical trial? And with people um, suffering from, for example, from, from congenital hearing loss, age, which we try and intervene, becomes a big variable, as you're suggesting. And so, you know, if you're in the pharmaceutical industry, it's like, okay, that's translational medicine he's talking about. And, and it is, I just think we do it really well. And it's really the essence of, of the scientific core of Decibel is linking our molecular work in the cells of the inner ear to a fantastic understanding of the patients, their individual phenotypes, and, and how we look to bridge that gap between preclinical research and the clinic. And the, the, the truth is, I mean, I, there are no approved therapies, um, and there hasn't been a lot of work, as I said up front. But but it's not like you know we're we're complete. You know we're not going to we're not going to be the first people either to do a gene therapy in the air, nor to nor to try and develop a therapy. But the translation has been really poor, and I think that our ability to understand the mechanistic pharmacology preclinical and preclinically, and then be confident that that was going to work in a human being, has has been really poor. And obviously genetics from a simplistic perspective is a fantastic way to bridge that gap right we know which gene we're trying to fix and therefore right. is the ear able to be fixed in a, in a child of you know one two years old and can we get the gene there safely and effectively and turn it on in the right place right but, but those are problems that you can break down and solve and you can analyze them in smaller animals and larger animals whereas i think historically the preclinical data how do you validate it in a human being? Or do we really know those mechanisms are going to work in a human being? Well, the, the outcomes have shown us that we didn't have all the understandings of that. And I think you look back on it and the ability to translate has been has been weak. And that's why the genetics is is so appealing, uh, uh, you know, as a formative place to, to start and try and build a, a pipeline uh, of therapeutics, at least in our opinion. Yeah, it's funny because we always come back to this genetic part of it. And I remember like somebody saying to me way back, no, it wasn't that long ago, relatively speaking, but why would you want to sequence anything, right? And and now it's like, it's the cornerstone yeah. of, of, of know, everything we're doing. Yep. Um, but but you guys have another drug, right? That, we that prevents uh, autotoxicity, right? Damage yeah. to the inner ear. Yep. Um, and it's, that's one of the, most common side effects of chemotherapeutic drugs like uh, cisplatin. Right? I mean, th yep. for those people that are listening, right, these little hairs, it's the same, you know, thing as like maybe the hair on your head, like they get negatively don't go there. Please, please don't go there. It confuses people. <laughs> um, but yeah, but, me, but, but having, essentially, having, right, Yeah, no, have, you, have, you've got a drug that you're working on this in this space. Yes, we, we do. So firstly, um, 
Harry's just upset because of our you know relative quantity of hair here. The hair cells in your ear are very different than the hair cells on top of your head or other parts of your body. <laughs> the hair cells, their, their role is to transduce a signal, through, you know, on the inside of your cochlea into, into your brain. Um, so, um, but the cisplatin-based chemotherapy is still very, very commonly used around the, around the world, and. Um, is quite efficacious, particularly in certain types of tumors. It's widely used, for example, in testicular cancer, just one example. <clears throat> and it comes with, but it comes with a couple of, of, of fairly severe toxicities, one of which is it kills, you know, the, the hair cells in your inner ear, <clears throat> excuse me, and it also damages their interactions, you know, with the nervous system. And um, uh, earlier in Decibel's life, when we were, sort of using our biological thinking before we, that's what I would say when we started as a, as a biology company and we explored different molecular, um, molecular modalities as the right way to, to treat it. And now we are significantly focused on gene therapy as we've been talking about. This program was homegrown and, and we're, we're pretty excited about it despite you know, our core investment in gene therapy now. And what we have is a proprietary formulation of a molecule known as sodium thiosulfate, which is a natural metabolite, and it chemically inactivates cisplatin. And so we actually administer this by a um, an injection into the middle ear, and then the active ingredient leaches into the inner ear. And we administer that about three hours or so in advance of the cisplatin um, uh, IV, so that by the time the cisplatin gets to the ear, the inner ear is already bathed in sodium thiosulfate, and so you and then you have a chemical reaction in situ right. that inactivates the cisplatin. And you know it's interesting because some people don't find that very sort of biotech sexy, but um, it's actually an incredibly elegant way to 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 stop the side effects of a molecule that has multiple. Da multiple molecular forms of damage that are probably being imposed on different cell types. So solving that biologically or biochemically is a very hard and diverse problem. Whereas solving it chemically in situ, we think is is very powerful. The principle, to give some credit, was validated by a company called Fennec, but they have an IV administration and they are constantly fighting between achieving good things in, as you might imagine, preventing against their toxicity without <clears throat> inhibiting the efficacy of the drug and it and it's you know it, it needs yeah. and that's that is a very and they hopefully eventually will get approval for a fairly a narrow pediatric population um because it's been very hard to sort of thread the needle of can i protect without inhibiting the efficacy now if you go directly to the organ where the damage is being done local administration of a proprietary formulation so it sits in the ear it's there in advance, this is planned. Essentially, none of it leaches out into the circulation. So we have, we believe, negligible risk of in inhibiting in any way the, the, the cancer benefit of the circulating cisplatin. So oh. we're achieving a, a local protection. And um, we're, we're looking, we'll be, we'll be reporting some human proof of concept data, um, we've said, in the first half of this year. So pretty excited about that, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't need sexy. I just need something to like work right i mean sexy is nice but you know if it's no, working it's, it's working it's, sometimes you know it, but it's, it, it's uh, interesting right so so not not to compare protection of hearing against protection from 
people who are going to die of cancer. But it's an interesting example of where hearing health or ear health gets neglected. So in the context, you know, cisplatin is used in many cases with what people refer to as an intent to cure. And so people can get cured. Young men, I think the cure rate is something like 95%. So you're talking about a, a young man, maybe 20 years old, he's going to live for 100 years, right? Uh, or or yeah. maybe, more, maybe more. And um, nowadays. And so the the importance of protecting his his hearing at that age, and there are female cancers as well, but his hearing at that age for his long-term health is, is incredibly important. But it gets it gets unsurprisingly neglected because the focus is on is on the cancer, which is which is understandable. But um, but we think that there's a really important opportunity to you know to to provide a better overall solution for um, for those people. It's going to have incredible impact later in their life as their hearing would be you know naturally degenerating anyway and um and, and i think because of the the, the the understandable stress when you're going through chemotherapy you know worrying about the hearing decrement is it's just not top of mind and so we've got some awareness we've got some work to do to increase awareness there and hoping that some of our animal data might replicate in human beings because we think this could be fairly effective and really um, hopefully get it into the, the minds of oncology physicians is the goal that you should be thinking about this. You're trying to cure this patient. You're trying to, whether it's a woman with ovarian cancer in her 50s or a young man with testicular cancer, they're going to live for decades to come. And we think it's important that their hearing health is protected and, and we can help you do that potentially in a very powerful, rather simple way, actually. So... I'm going to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that if this gets through sooner than the gene therapy and can generate some revenue in the short term, you can then utilize that revenue mm -hmm. to continue to fund the gene therapy programs. We're all always looking for money to do this, right, Harry? Um, <laughs> so, so, Unfortunately, that's yeah, the business no, no, we're that's, in. That's, that's the nature of the beast. Um, it certainly... Um, after we have our data in hand on the proof of concept, we'll be looking for an FDA interaction to define the path to uh, registration, which we think could be, you know, relatively efficient. Um, we have, um, you know, the medicine then effectively becomes an oncology supportive care medicine. It needs to be administered probably in the chemotherapy suite right in advance of, of a patient receiving their chemotherapy. So it needs to be marketed to an oncologist um, with... Right a lot of education in the audiology community so that they're leaning on their oncology colleagues to, you need to do this and you need to think about this as you're putting your patient through through chemotherapy. Um, ultimately, I think that that marketing to the oncologist, I don't think Decibel's going to do that itself. We're going to eventually, you know, bring a partner, partner in to do that who's, who is a specialist in, you know, in marketing to, to the oncology uh, community. And we want to be involved in rethinking really about making sure that the audiological education and understanding is transferred into into the cancer into the cancer world. And so that's a that's a commercial strategy and, and, and structure that we'll we'll put together, you know, potentially starting when the data is in hand, but certainly sometime between now and uh, approval of the drug. 
Well, Lawrence, I, you know, I can only wish you the greatest success because I, and working in older people would be great because I'm sure that I'm going to need this at some point. Um, and some of my friends may also need oh, it. Yeah. But uh, it was great to catch up with you. Great to talk. Um, you know, I, I hope, uh, you know, it, it's not as many years pass again before we, we get a chance to connect. So uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Harry. I really, really appreciate it. And hopefully I've been able to provide some of the color and why we're so excited and, and think we're opening up a, a new area of therapy here for people with, with hearing loss and, and, and balance disorders beyond that. So really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much. And great to see you. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode, as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorikian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.